Good evening. Um, my name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Chancellor of the Cathedral and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening on behalf of the whole Cathedral community. It's said that you always know what sort of church you've come into by having a quick look in the vestry. If you go in and there's an enormous crucifix, you know you're in a Catholic church. And if you go in and there's an enormous picture of the uh, Good Shepherd, it's probably a Methodist church. And if there's a full-length mirror, it's definitely a Church of England uh, church. And a lot of church preoccupation, I'm afraid, can be very self-referential. And we haven't escaped that entirely here at St. Paul's Cathedral. But over the centuries, uh, and still today, with, I think, a renewed energy we're very much committed to public conversation for the sake of the common good. Wanting to provide a space, whether like this, or sometimes upstairs under the dome with thousands, or over meals with two or three, or in seminar rooms in workplaces and organisations, to bring people together, and sometimes, let me tell you, there are some pretty surprising pairings, to ask what it might mean for us all to be loyal to the future in our working life, in our priorities and values, and in our relationships. And the St. Paul's Institute is one very important way we seek to do this with those specifically working in the areas of finance, economics, and social well-being. And it's a great thing that tonight, this evening, is happening through a partnership of the St. Paul's Institute the British Bankers Association, and the European Parliament Office in the UK. And it's a partnership, I must say, that we are very delighted to be a part of. This event will be filmed and will shortly be able to be viewed on the St. Paul's Institute website. It is then uh, my pleasure also to introduce the chair of tonight's conversation. Brooke Masters will be known to all of you here. She is the Chief Regulation Correspondent for the Financial Times, covering the UK Financial Services Authority, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision and the Financial Stability Board. Prior to this, she was, of course, the FT's City Correspondent and worked for many years for the Washington Post. She is a very well-known writer on banking and stockbroking and asset management, as well, of course, as criminal justice, education and politics. And we're really delighted that Brooke is to take charge of this evening, and I now hand over to her as she introduces this important event and our speakers for this evening. So welcome again, and ladies and gentlemen, Brooke Masters. Welcome, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, in the wake of the financial crisis and a series of scandals involving virtually all the blue-chip names in banking, demands for more and tougher regulation continue to rise. And parliamentarians and regulators in Basel, Washington, London, Brussels, Singapore, Hong Kong are all rising to the occasion. But while these thousands of pages of rules on everything from clearing derivatives to calculating bank capital ratios make the financial system safer or more ethical, the UK's famous experiment with principles-based regulation did not exactly cover itself with glory, as billions of pounds in PPI redress and LIBOR rate-rigging fines make clear. But hundreds of thousands of pages of US rules don't seem to have done much better. Short of detonating a neutron bomb in the square mile and starting over with primary schoolers, 
What can be done to improve ethical standards and rebuild the UK financial services sector? What resources are available to us, and how can we distinguish between good and bad cultures? And, given our location, what role do the ancient faiths and the principles they bring to us have to play in this sort of recasting of the financial services sector? Our first speaker, Anthony Brown, is chief executive of the BBA. Anthony previously headed up Morgan Stanley's lobbying and regulatory shop in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. He also worked as a policy director for economic development for London Mayor Boris Johnson and helped set up the City UK. A former television and newspaper journalist at the Observer, Times, and BBC, he spent time in Brussels, and he did a stint running the policy exchange think tank. Educated at Cambridge, he lives in North London with his wife and two kids. Our Brussels expert, Sharon Bowles, became an MEP in May 2005 and was re-elected for a second parliamentary term in 2009. She is the first Lib Dem and the first Briton to chair the Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee, which frankly handles basically all the regulation on this subject in Brussels. Educated at Reading University and Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford, Sharon's also a chartered patent attorney, which means she understands things the rest of us can only dream of. She is married with two sons and has competed at national and international level in rowing and archery, which is something I didn't know until today. Leslie Griffiths got his BA at University College Cardiff and was an assistant lecturer in medieval English at St. David's College. He trained at Wesley House Cambridge for Methodist ministry and spent most of the 1970s in Haiti. Since 1980, he's served the church in a variety of posts in and around London, including nearly 20 years as superintendent minister at Wesley's Chapel. He has served as president of the Methodist Conference in 1994-95 and has written seven books. He was made Baron Griffiths of Burryport in 2004. Married, he has three children and two grandchildren. David Sayer has more than 25 years in the financial services industry and leads the KPMG global banking practice. He's worked with virtually every UK bank on programs related to operational efficiency, payments, competition, and government relations. A chartered accountant, he was involved in the rollout of the chip and pin program that influences all our lives in the UK. He led the design and implementation of the post office card account for the government and was instrumental in the creation of Sainsbury's Bank. David has three daughters and three sons. And Anthony will now take over. Great. Thank you very much. That's a very flattering instruction, Brooke. And it's a fantastic honor to be here at the St. Paul's Institute, which has done so much to promote discussion on the ethical standards and finance over the years. And uh, I didn't realise actually when I agreed to speak to this, I'll be, I'll be speaking looking at the tomb of uh, the Duke of Wellington. I just hope I don't meet my, uh, my own Waterloo in the discussion afterwards. The cathedral here, which I have, quite a few, uh, have had quite a few family associations with, is obviously quite literally at the heart of the, the, uh, the financial system in the UK. But not so long ago it found itself at the heart of the major national debate on financial ethics. The Occupy movement, I'm sure you remember, camped outside and dominated television news for many weeks, attacking the morality of the city. And although the tents have gone, the debate hasn't. A couple of weeks after I accepted this job as Chief Executive of the BBA, the LIBOR scandal broke. The nation was quite literally disgusted by the, uh, was quite rightly disgusted by the activities of certain traders promising each other bottles of Bollinger for attempting to manipulate this global index. And personally, I felt quite physically sickened by the revelations that the regulators found. And since the financial crisis broke, the city had been seen as just greedy and out of control, but the LIBOR scandal took it to a whole new level, making the city appear to be some sort of criminal conspiracy. The business secretary himself, Vince Cable, described the country's main economic sector as a cesspit, 
words that echoed around the world. And certainly London's global reputation for probity and integrity, which it had had for centuries, took a major hit, much to the delight, open delight, of some of our competitors. It also provoked a huge national debate about culture inside our banks and also set up, set, caused the government to set up the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards. And one of the questions that that Parliamentary Commission is trying to answer is what can be done to raise ethical and professional standards in banks. This debate about ethics and standards creates a whole, is, marks a whole new phase in the debate about reforming our banking system and also about the role and limits of regulation. Previously, the debate since the start of the crisis had largely been about how to reform our banking sector to make sure that it doesn't implode again. As Brooke mentioned in her introduction, national and international regulators, and particularly those in Brussels, have put together a major regulatory overhaul to ensure that never again will taxpayers have to bail out the banks. That work programme, and it is enormous, as I'm sure Sharon Bowles will uh, testify, um, is still in progress, but it's probably at the beginning of the end. The Capital Requirements Directive 4, uh, increasing the capital levels in banks to make them safer, implementing Basel III in Europe, was completed overnight last night. It now needs to be implemented, which is another major body of work. Legislation requiring European banks to have recovery and resolution plans, putting robust contingency planning in place in case they wobble or fail, is nearing completion. The chaos in Cyprus over the last few days has shown the problems of not having such plans in place. The EU is also introducing new legislation to put firewalls around banks to prevent contagion around the financial system if one of them does fail. And in the UK, the government is doing its own things. It's separating the Financial Services Authority into the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulatory Authority uh, to help promote the stability of the system. It's also legislating to put to, for banks to ring-fence their retail operations from their wholesale operations, in part to make them more stable and in part to tackle what it sees as cultural problems within the banks. Concerned that banks might try to game the system and uh, work their way around the ring fence, the government has agreed to electrify the ring fence, so-called, which means giving the government and the regulators powers to break a bank in, an individual bank into two, separating its retail and wholesale operations entirely if they try and uh, tunnel below the ring fence. My members support this proposal as they make clear to the Parliamentary Commission of Banking Standards. In short, a whole reform programme is being put in place to ensure that the crisis that we've seen in 2007 onwards never happens again. All the pieces of legislation do, more or less, fit together. They are reforms that the banks and the British Bankers Association have actively supported. The banking system is definitely better for them. But they don't, all these reforms don't really touch on the cultural issues that have come to the fore to prominence since the LIBOR scandal. How do you ensure that bankers are not just good at their job, but actually doing good? It is a critical question, as we found out from the libel scandal, as we found out from the various mis-selling scandals. As Brooke pointed out in her introduction, you can have all the regulations in the world, but if employees are determined to do things that are unethical, bad things will still happen. This all raises two fundamental questions posed by the title of this evening's event. What role can regulation play in changing the culture of a, of a company or of a bank? And how will it affect the bottom line of the bank? Does having integrity make you uncompetitive? Bob Diamond, the, uh, the recently uh, retired, resigned uh, chief executive of Barclays, described corporate culture as what employees do when they know that other people aren't looking at them. 
And that very definition, which I think is rather good, rather highlights the problem of trying to change behaviour as intangible as culture with regulation. We've given a lot of thought about this too at the BBA. We've been in active dialogue with a lot of our members who are very engaged on this particular issue. And indeed, many of them are undergoing reform programs internally themselves, trying to change their internal culture. You get regular pronouncements from them, uh, which are picked up in the papers. At the BBA, and we set up a working group on this, we, we concluded there is actually quite a lot more that can be done to raise standards across the industry. And we submitted both oral and written, written evidence to Parliament. I won't go through all the detail, as you can find it on the BBA uh, website and indeed parliamentary website. But in, in, in summary, the first thing you need to do is actually build on what there is already there, and there is quite a lot, strengthening and enforcing the existing system. That means, for example, widening the approved person's regime so it covers a greater range of those working in the city, helping to keep out the bad apples, indeed helping to kick out the bad apples in the first place and make sure they stay up. It also means, critically, making sure that existing laws are actually upheld. Um, there are already strong laws on theft, on fraud, on conspiracy to fraud and many others. They are not always fully enforced, and we need to make sure the law enforcement agents do fully enforce them. It is quite simple. Everyone who breaks the law should face the full force of the law. Otherwise, and this applies to banks as much as to newspapers or indeed parliaments when it comes to expenses, there is a risk that a culture of law-breaking becomes entrenched and people feel the law doesn't apply to them. Secondly, we need a bottom-up approach, improving the professional training of individuals working in the city, including, critically, training in ethics as a fundamental part of what it means to being a qualified banker. There are professional institutes who already do a lot of good work on this with the banks, but there could be stronger requirements for higher professional standards. And indeed, those who entered banking uh, 30, 30 years ago or so say that actually it was completely normal then at that time to get a, a professional qualification. Now it's more an exception. Third, we need a top, what we call the top-down approach, requiring the boards of the banks to raise ethical standards throughout their companies, perhaps easier said than done. But part of that would require banks being committed to upholding an industry-wide code of conduct and making sure that their employees, the systems are in place to make sure their employees uh, abide by that code of conduct. We proposed establishing an independent banking standards board that would set, monitor and uphold the professional and ethical standards in the industry. That standards board would have to have teeth to ensure that the banks do indeed take the necessary steps to change their cultures. As I said, we submitted this evidence to Parliament and the Parliamentary Commissioner considering these and other, many, many other proposals, and we'll find out in six weeks or so what they conclude. But that still leaves the second question posed by this uh, evening's event, which is whether having higher ethical standards will be good for banks and good for London. Indeed, this was an issue I was grilled by the Parliamentary Commission on when I gave them oral evidence. And the unequivocal answer is, I'm happy to say, agree by both the BBA and all my members, is yes. Having higher ethical standards is a competitive advantage for companies as well as financial centres like London, not a competitive disadvantage. Not least because of the international nature of our business. London's financial centre has for centuries traded on its reputation for integrity. People from around the world were happy to come to London to do business, to, leave, to, to trade, to, to leave their money here, uh, because they knew they would be treated honestly. And likewise, nowadays, global businesses come to London for their financial needs because they know they can trust the services they get. 
Just look at why London has become the legal capital of the world. It's largely because the English legal system has about the highest ethical standards in the world. Businesses know that our lawyers and judges are free from corruption, free from political interference and free from petty nationalist biases. So when it comes to London as a financial centre, recent scandals have knocked our reputation for integrity. It's essential that we and the banks do everything we can to restore it. Thank you. Sharon, would you like to lead the responses? All right, uh, I'll lead the responses. Well, um, you've already mentioned that uh, we were working into the night to finish off CRD4, so if I doze off, you'll know why. Um, some people have been asking us actually why it's taken us so long, but a quick statistic is because there were 800 articles in it and it took us 10 months. It actually, per article, is the fastest legislation uh, that has ever been done. Um, at the rate of about three articles a day. Um, and uh, as somebody who has to keep wading through 1,400 pages every weekend, I can tell you it, uh, it takes a lot of work. But I, I think that um, it is a large and complex piece of legislation, and, and that is one of our problems now, that we are having uh, regulation that is drafted initially by the supervisors by the Basel Committee who are a set of supervisors and it's, it's very technical and it's into the nitty-gritty um, and really rather detailed. So there, there are not actually any broad brush principles in there that when you look for it, you know, thou shalt be good or something. Uh, it, it, it's a complete set of rules that you have to comply with that will have more rules added on to them when it comes to the manual and the, and the technical standards and everything else that are the further layers of complexity that are added on. So it, it, it becomes such a challenge, I think, to make sure that you're complying that you don't have time to sit back and think, well, where am I going ethically on some of it? Uh, and so I, I think we really seriously have to look at, at, at simplicity because I, I, mean, I have a set of rules that says if you don't understand it, then you shouldn't be selling it uh, or you shouldn't be buying it. And that's something that is certainly not true. And, and so fundamentally, we've had some very bad ethics in, in what has been termed good business. Uh, in the sense that, that lots of things have been bought and sold that somebody else, somewhere else, has, has fabricated. And I, and I have to say, uh, it looks like we'll be sort of soon going down that, that track again. So simplification, I think, goes hand in hand with, with uh, creating a, a better ethical background. Um, I, I think we could do more in terms of, of professionalism. We've, we've totally lost the my word is my bond uh, reputation in London. I'm not saying that, that it's gone, but, but internationally there is certainly a big tarnish and we need to work hard to, to get that back. And you know, if you look at the kind of penalties that you have if you misbehave, they're not comparable with the penalties that you might have in other professions you get struck off for a little bit or you move sideways. And I've actually been having to 
deal with these in legislation. And believe it or not, I had to fight really, really, really hard to get it agreed that if somebody offended uh, and was struck off effectively in one country, that in the European Union, that there was a list that could be consulted before you appointed them as a director in a, a financial institution somewhere else. Now, I've actually got that into CRD4, um, but, but it's, it's quite a fight. And anyway, their name is only going to hang around on this list for a maximum of five years. And in some countries, it's not so much. Well, if I'm sorry, if you're a doctor, you get struck off for life. If you're a solicitor, you lose <coughs> your license to practice. Um, and I don't see why. Uh, when what can be done to an individual and to the country through, through bad bankers is just as serious as through, you know, a bad accountant. They get struck off too. So um, I, I think that, that more professional standards would be helpful. Um, and I guess also there's this feeling perhaps sometimes if you're looking at things like the LIBOR rigging that it's, that it's victimless or it's not victimless as we're going to find out as all the compensation claims come through but it's one of those things that you don't actually connect when you're doing it. Now I think there's very few people that were involved in that um, but it does show how the wrong incentive can even turn what we've turned greed into fraud. Um, and I'm, I'm quite, I suppose, one of the most famous things that has been in CRD4 is our capping of bankers' bonuses, which is about the only thing amongst the 800 articles that has got into the press here in the UK, um, which is actually a very small part of it. But, but and, and, and there's been a lot of objection from the UK Treasury about this because they said, oh, well, the, the rules were that were being laid down by, by the supervisors that write the, the Basel, II rule, Basel III rules and that have then become CRD is that they wanted to connect um, more to performance and that was being encouraged. Well, we, we actually think that an honest day's work for an honest day's pay is a good starting point. If you do have a performance-related pay, it shouldn't be completely disproportionate to your salary because we think that that does cause um, almost a, a panic. How am I going to get my bonus? And, you know, I talk to a lot of people, so I know that for three months of the year, there's nothing in their mind apart from obsessing about what their boss thinks about them and what bonus they're going to get. And that is not a background to run a, a stable banking system. And if you think that, oh, my goodness, I'm going to lose my top X traders... And, and you think that your business is exposed because you lose a handful of people, we would say, again, that's not a stable way to run a business. So we, we challenge the, the, you know, the arguments that come at us. We, we, we actually have challenged the sort of fundamentals underlying them. And so, so that's why there was a sort of very, very overwhelming majority in the parliament to, to do what we have done largely because last time we did the bonuses, and I've heard, I've heard all the UK politicians say we've been the strictest in the world on bonuses. Too right you have, because we made you from the European Parliament. It was nothing to do with the FSA in the UK. It was us last time round in CRD, uh, against pressure from the FSA and the UK government. And in that, we asked for moderation 
from the banks on bonuses and we didn't get it. So when you don't get it, guess what? We come back for another bite. And, you know, that's, that's the point. Can we rely on ethics? Our experience from CRD3, ask for moderation, do you get it? No. And the only reason that there is clawback from bonuses now is a, it's a bottom line issue because of all of the fines for mis-selling and the LIBOR scandal. It's, it's not a... It's not until the actual fines have started to hit the balance sheet that the bonuses have been cut. They weren't cut when the bad behaviour was found. They were only cut when the fines hit. So maybe that's where I'll end. Would you like to go next, Leslie? Yes, why not? Um, well, I come from an entirely different perspective uh, and I'm always glad and fascinated to hear experts talk on their own areas of expertise to each other. Um, this has been uh, quite an extraordinary week. On Monday in Parliament, I was part of a debate about uh, the Leveson um, report and regulation, or should it be self-regulation, of the press. And the visceral arguments on both sides of that discussion revealed um, both the determination on the part of some to have a statutory underpinning of regulation for the press and on the other side the, uh, the rather um, panicky uh, rhetoric about um, us losing the freedom of the press. Um, does regulation work? Can regulation work? Seems to be the same set of questions. Um, and uh, a thousand page regulation book? Well, I'm glad I don't have to work it, although I must say that the Methodist constitutional uh, discipline of uh, the Methodist Church runs to almost that number of pages, and I've never opened it yet in 40 years. Um, and uh, there is common sense that you can apply it to. On Tuesday, uh, a pope was um, inaugurated in Rome, uh, had his inaugural mass, and talked about the church needing um, to be a church, a poor church. Um, I've lived for 10 years in one of the poorest countries in the world, in Haiti, and I know that the decisions and the discussions we have in a place like this, for all its being um, uh, uh, of high-sounding and sometimes rather technical issues, um, affects in a very material way the poorest people on the planet. And therefore, they must remain in my mind as we discuss the issues here um, on an evening like this. Uh, today, um, Justin Welby was enthroned as the Archbishop of Canterbury, a churchman, who sits as a member of the Parliamentary Commission on Banking. And I'm glad to see someone else on that commission sitting here with us today, um, reminding us that uh, from an ethical point of view, um, there are very legitimate uh, things to be said about the whole practice of banking. I must say there have been times in the last five years when I have thought to myself that what needed to have happened in order to get things moving, although I'm comforted by the thought that certain things are about to happen and about to be agreed and about to move forward, I didn't know much about all of that, but in the last five years I have thought to myself that really um, the, the financial sector, the banking industry, um, should have really gone the way of all flesh. It should have capitulated to the laws of capitalism and regardless of the fact that many ordinary people would have lost their money, it should have just been allowed to happen because an artificial situation has arisen because that didn't come to pass. And, um, and all the kind of posturing and, 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 and position taking now, it seems to me, is a consequence of us being in this artificial place 
where public money has been spent to rescue um, the most capitalist of all the institutions that capitalism has ever bred. Um, and um, it seems to me that uh, the consequences of allowing the banking industry to collapse or to have its victims um, would have been one of two. Uh, one, it would have been the shock required to take the action necessary to reform the banking industry. Um, secondly, if um, uh, not at the same time, perhaps both of them, um, public up uproar would have been such that there had been a revolution on the streets and perhaps it might have taken or needed that to shake us to our senses. And that leads me to my final remark, a bit bombastic I know, but I'm a Welshman and we had a great victory on Saturday and I feel on top of the world. Um, um, many of the discussions I've heard and taken part in um, have been um, with technicians talking to each other. There is the need for that finding of solutions within the industry, between the experts, but there is a need to face outwards as well as inwards, and there is a need to help the public to understand what on earth is happening in the banking industry. There is a need to help the public understand what these bonuses amount to. Uh, I mean, a million pounds represents 40 years of my salary. And I have a fabulous life. <coughs> so what do they do with all these bonuses? Let me just tell you, as I finish, that there are two Lord Griffiths in the House of Lords. The other one is Lord Griffiths of uh, Forest Vach, and he's the director of um, Goldman Sachs. Now, our mail gets mixed up with each other, and I have, to, I have to put mine back in his pigeonhole, and he has to put his back in mine. Um, uh, but once I saw in the paper what the size of his bonus was going to be, and I said to him, Brian, if that one comes into my pigeonhole, you're not having it back. <laughs> David, do you want to? Yeah. Brooke emphasised that I've only got three minutes, and what I'd really like to do is focus down just on regulation. And in particular, the <coughs> difficulty, as I see it, of really trying to get regulation which could have mitigated 2008, is right for today, and is appropriate for tomorrow. Because from, from my perception, 2008 was, was not just caused by greed, and it wasn't even just caused by bankers. And changes to bonus arrangements and, and, and culture are absolutely necessary, but absolutely not sufficient. Many bankers actually did think that they were doing the right thing for their bank and for their customers at, at precisely the point where they weren't. And we need to understand why so few of them and us saw the collapse of the wholesale funding markets and the explosive puncture of an asset price bubble which a lot of people have been enjoying for a very long time. And there is a real need, you know, as Leslie said, to make banks safer for all of us. As there was in 1933 when, in response to the last Great Depression, uh, if we can call this one that, the, the US introduced what was then the 37-page Glass-Steagall Act and it became several thousand pages later. I do question, in terms of if we really want to make banks safer, is the right way to do it to have an estimated 30,000 new pages of rules coming out of Dodd-Frank, and potentially, I've seen one estimate of, you know, from a respected source, of, of twice that amount from Europe. And after the complexity of Basel II, 
it, it really was of very little use in 2008 in preventing the collapse of bank balance sheets. And, and from my perception and a lot of others, it actually was pro-cyclical and inflated the problem. And Sarbanes-Oxley, which you know, a lot of people thought was about controls and about real rigor, was equally ineffective in preventing the LIBOR and, and the AML scandals. And like a lot of others, uh, I, I've really come to believe that simpler rules are better. And I, I you know, think the starting point of the leverage ratio and the need for banks to hold far more common equity than they did in 2008 is, is the right place. And the next question is, how much is right for today? And if we push too far too quickly, we'll see even more rapid deleveraging, banks lending less, and the extension of flatlining economies. And there is a risk that too high a leverage ratio introduced too quickly uh, won't bring us a ladder, uh, but it'll bring us a steel lid that falls on the hole that we've fallen into. But my greatest concern, and I know that a lot of regulators share this, is that there is a real risk. Because this was such a crisis, and because we're so focused on 2008, there's a real risk that we're fighting the last war, and that we're building a Maginot line. And that the next crisis may not come from an asset price bubble bursting, and it may well come from cybercrime, terrorist attack, or a combination of the two or a secondary bank failing, like long-term capital management. We've moved a lot of assets out of banks into secondary banks, uh, and I do worry about the stability of the secondary banking sector and the regulation of it. And I know the regulators are following the assets, but I worry about that. I worry about Eurozone concerns. I worry about the stability of banking platforms and payment systems. And it does concern me that by focusing with exquisite hindsight on the causes of 2008, which we absolutely need to do, that we risk walking backwards into a very uncertain future. And I, I really do believe, in summary, we need rules that start out from being simple and become complex only if we can see an absolute requirement for that. And that we really do have to keep a weather eye out on, on the future and not just on the past. Well, I'm going to take the privilege of being the chair to ask a question, I think, of the whole panel. Um, it seems to me as we look at all, the, all of this, there are two separate things going on. One is that banks got fragile and fell apart. And the other thing is that bankers got greedy and sold people things that they shouldn't have sold them. And there are actually two separate scandals that both have to do with culture. And we can make banks safer, but they won't keep people from selling things to my grandmother that I don't want her to buy. And I think it's lovely that we're talking about banking standards and having a commission and some sort of honor roll that the Europeans will keep, and that's great. But how many of you are getting tired of hearing these speeches from the latest bank chief executive about how they've really fixed it this time, only to hear that yet another bank has paid yet another fine for yet another set of misbehavior? I mean, what I find most depressing is that the banks that we were told in 2008 were the good guys, the JP Morgans, the HSBCs, the Standard Charters, the ones who really did it right. <laughs> Turns out they were laundering drug money from Mexico and playing games with our, I mean, at this point, what do we do? I mean, capping bankers' bonuses to one-time salary, does that really make them good people? I mean, my husband works for a bank, I should point out, and he is well below any cap. This will not affect our lives, to put it mildly. 
I don't think he's a good guy because his bonus is capped. What, what, exa- what can we really do to start over? You know, start sharing since I picked on you in the bonus cap? Well, I, I, I think the bonus cap is just, just a small part, and it's certainly not going to solve the problems. Um, but I think that it just uh, flies in the face of ordinary folk at a time of austerity as well. So you have to expect politicians to respond to that. And I think that we, we've got a lot of problems because we are not looking at what we are doing. We are... We, Two of us have spoken about complexity, and I think that having complexity of financial instruments uh, that, that uh, race are in a sort of arms race of complexity with the regulations is not the way to go. Um, and I don't quite know how one actually begins to unwind this. It is rather difficult. But, but I mean, I've, I've, I've dreamt of all kinds of things, like you know, putting a levy on uh, the number of pages that it takes in the contract or not allowing you to have disclaimers or uh, removing the, um, the cover that disclaimers give you because if you're exposed legally, people will take a bit more care. I, I, I've thought of all of these kinds of things. And in little ways, I've, I've pushed them in. Um, but but the, the other problem I think we have with regulation is it makes it... We're falling into the, into the area of sameness if we apply the same regulations to the banks and to those that are in the, uh, the secondary banking sector and over into the insurance and, the, and, f- and fund management, and we haven't quite got it right, they're all going to fall at the same time with the same kind of problem. So we're losing, we're losing our diversity. And you know, when you go round and round and round this loop, the, the, the only two things that I can really come up with are, to repeat, simplicity and transparency. Uh, We have to know what is going on and we have to understand what is going on and only then can people, I think, begin to be confident that that, that the products are right. Now, that doesn't mean to say there's going to be no complex products, but, but, but I really think that there is a future... For, for banks that can think ahead and, and think like this, because I don't actually believe that the, the younger generation, apart from those that are in the sort of sharp city suits working in the city, I don't think the younger generation want to have any truck with this financial system, which has sold them down the river in the past, where they're bearing the brunt of all the problems that we're having now from lack of employment to the quantitative easing, which is basically robbing them of their future. All of the things that we're having to do to solve (coughs) problems are harming them. And I think that the younger generation, and by by this I mean the up to 35s, as they begin to become more vocal, as they begin to be the people that hold the political power, then uh, they're going to be wanting something different, something more straightforward, and and something that, that they can understand. Do you want to go next, David? Well, no, but I'm going to. Um, no, I, I think that... I'd really like to look at culture in terms of unpick, unpicking examples past. I said you can't just look backwards, but I think we do need to look backwards. And, and really the test of any new culture is how would it have stopped the conduct risk scandals you know, what would have been the protection for the whistleblowers on LIBOR who saw the bottles of champagne going across? Uh, in terms of things like interest rate derivatives, actually, 
you know, I, I think it's fair to say I don't think anybody in a bank selling an interest rate derivative foresaw that actually quantitative easing, which was in part a solution to the problem, was going to drive interest rates so low that these derivatives were going to be catastrophic for the people who'd bought them. And of course, the people who bought them didn't see that either. So there's something about you know, setting products with, and, and, and really testing them for scenarios. That's, you know, that's just a culture of rigor and, and proper engineering, bridge, building bridges that work. Then there's the ethics of, of, of selling products. Uh, and you know, I, I do think codes of conduct and banking standards boards and, and Institute of Bankers, Chartered Institute of Bankers exams, you know, I, I did actually pass the Chartered Institute of Bankers exams and they were good training and actually I think did instill some, some, some pretty good ethics. But you know, in terms of interest rate derivatives, I, I think even if you, you, you've got a product that, that, that failed, if you sold it to somebody who really understood it, and, and you could expect to understand it, uh, you know, a magic circle lawyer, for example, is on the board, I think that should stand, that's it, you know, sophisticated buyer. Selling it to fish and chip shop owners, and most of them weren't sold to fish and chip shop owners, who didn't understand they were not buying a fixed rate loan. What in the cultural standards you've now got mean that somebody says this is just totally inappropriate? And you know, how, do, how does that work? How do, how do the, the cult, new cultural standards work to stop that? And I think that they're the tests that you've got to pass by, by reference to the conduct risk issues of the past. And I'm not sure it's easy to pass those tests. That's it. Well, it's, it's almost 20 years since I read Will Hutton's book, The State We're In. Um, and um, that's a magnificent essay um, about the way in which trust is being eroded for a variety of reasons which he analyzed and, um, and his underlining of the fact that trust is the hardest commodity in the world to build back. Um, I just tested um, a, my, a theory I'd, I'd nurtured for a while and looked up the Nobel Prize winners for economics from 1990 onwards to see if any of them had got their prize for anything that would have allowed us, if we'd read them rightly, to foresee what happened in 2008. And there wasn't one. I mean, it is the gloomy science. And, but but why, why was everybody taken so much by surprise, even people whose uh, understanding of economics was clearly at a level um, that's well beyond my imagining? Um, it just seems to me that um, we've got to develop skills of analysis um, within the banking industry and between the banking industry and the public at large that will give us greater confidence that people know what they're talking about and that they can handle the concepts that they're developing. Uh, it seems to me that um, the risk-taking has been so absolutely um, extraordinary uh, because the, of the complexity of the products that have been developed. Some people within an outfit understanding them and others not. But it's this building of trust that interests me. Lloyd's um, of London has as its watchword um, a Latin tag. Not anybody understands Latin anymore except the Pope. Well, he doesn't anymore, does he? Oberima um, fide, with, um, you know, and I translate that with, with, with trust by the bucketful. Um, it's based on trust. I mean, at the end of the day, the, our financial arrangement between ourselves must 
be worked out on the basis of trust. Trust is the, uh, the, the, the commodity beyond all commodities. Um, and if you're talking about culture and uh, shaping a culture, it seems to me that, um, that where the banking industry now and the statistic I saw today, um, which is trusted um, um, by the public at large, uh, by 4% when, uh, when, when, when people ask the question of a certain group of people. Um, if you're talking about culture, then it is the hardest thing in the world to turn the juggernaut around where cultural um, developments have taken place that move things in one direction if you want to bring the juggernaut back and turn it in another direction. It's like turning a liner. So um, hearts and minds, uh, persuading people that honesty isn't a bad thing, um, really sort of helping people to understand what ethical standards are, just good common sense, ordinary principles of goodness and integrity and altruism. A little bit of that um, uh, injected into... In, into and, and I really, and seriously, I talk about the banking system, but I'm talking about society at large, for goodness sake. I don't want to pick fights with the banking industry. I put my money in the Santander Bank. They got all half a crown of it, and, and you know, I depend on them. So that I, tomorrow I go back and have half a crown plus 0.5% interest on it. I mean, it's, it's a terrific deal they're giving me at the moment, but my, all my trust is in the banking industry. So we've got to get some, uh, some, some, something to quantify and to justify the trust we place in each other uh, because the work we do in our financial sector is on behalf of our society at large, our nation as it finds its way in the world. It doesn't do us any good just to, just to throw punches at people, but for goodness sake, let's see if we can uh, reconstitute a notion of goodness that we can all subscribe to. Anthony, would you like to speak up for the poor sector? <laughs> Indeed. Um, I actually, uh, I, I've also read uh, Will Hutton's The State We're In. I was, I was interviewed um, uh, by him as, uh, when he was editor of The Observer to be economics correspondent, and uh, so I mugged up for the interview by reading uh, his great book, which was railing against the short-term contract culture. And then at the end of the interview he said, I'm afraid all I can offer you is a short-term contract. <laughs> it shows how, how, shows how difficult many of these things are. Uh, you know, however, even if you've got very strong principles, the uh, reality of life can still make things difficult for you. I, just, I, I want to pick, on, pick up on a few points that have been raised. One is um, uh, just on the, 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 the issue of rules versus uh, principles. And the, um, I think Sharon mentioned in her uh, initial remarks about the city used to be run by, my word is my bond, uh, Pactum Air Dictum. And, uh, uh, and that was very easy when basically everyone uh, went to the same schools or went to the same clubs and all knew each other and everything else. And they, they uh, you know, you could trust them because you, you know, knew, you knew all their friends as well. But as London, after Big Bang, London, and it worked for a while, uh, <clears throat> but after the Big Bang, London got a lot more internationalized. And there were people from, uh, you know, many, many, suddenly people stopped going to the same... All, they no longer went all to the same schools and so on. They didn't all belong to the same clubs, etc. London was far more successful and rich as, uh, culturally and uh, also economically as a result of it. But it meant you couldn't just rely on this uh, uh, shared, my word is my bond, culture. And so after that, they started uh, realising that you need to introduce an awful lot of rules, which is... Um, as was mentioned earlier, what they do uh, in the US. And uh, the more complex financial services got, the more uh, complex the rulemaking has, uh, has become. And you end up with, I haven't heard the figure of 60,000 pages of EU legislation. I don't know if uh, Sharon would back that up. Uh, certainly, there is a huge argument for simplicity and, uh, and having more simplicity. And I completely back the suggestion that the legislation and regulation should be uh, simple to start with, unless you can see a reason why it needs to be uh, more complex, not least because if it's 
simple, then its intention is probably a lot clearer. Uh, and you don't get, if you've got unbelievably complex legislation, then people probably don't understand the intent of it. And they'll just, <coughs> they, they'll, they'll employ a lot of lawyers who will look at it. And that, there's a, a greater da- probably a greater danger of uh, gaming it in that way. And, it, and one of the most important things, and the reason why I mentioned stress culture at the beginning, and uh, is really coming back to Brooks' uh, impassioned plea. Uh, it's good to see you're not just a, a cynical journalist, but uh, uh, you know you're con- concerned about your subjects. I mean, I, I completely agree. I find it incredibly frustrating the uh, the number of scandals there are in the industry. And there've been since I was uh, accepted this job. As I said, there was a, the libel scandal. A few was, came out a few weeks later, and then the, the uh, money laundering scandals and sanctions busting scandals and so on. And it is, you know, I really it's my my job to try and restore trust and confidence in the industry, and I really want to. Uh, end the scandals. But the one thing that uh, does underline an awful lot of them is this cultural point. I mean, you can have lots of discussions about the regulation was wrong in this way or that way or whatever, but basically there were people who were <coughs> basically doing wrong things, whether it was deliberately mis-selling stuff or, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, money laundering or uh, you know, attempting to manipulate LIBOR or whatever. And so I, that's why I think it's so important, whatever regulations you bring in, unless you actually change the culture and get a more honest, decent uh, culture there, uh, you, will have, um, you will continue to have those, those problems, however many regulations you bring in. But one um, sort of optimistic thought to end on uh, is probably the only good thing to come out of the LIBOR scandal, and I, I'm still, the BBA runs LIBOR, I'm, I'm responsible for it. The, the only, and I'm spending half my time trying to restore uh, credibility to LIBOR, working with the government and the, uh, the, uh, the regulator, the, the FSA, um, probably the only good thing to come out of the LIBOR scandal is it's created a real focus and determination from the heads of the banks, uh, the chief executives and chairman level and, sort of, and downwards, to do whatever it takes to get their sector back uh, to being a part of society rather than apart from society and to being uh, honest and uh, having a a decent culture there and actually being uh, credible, regaining the trust and confidence of the public, of their customers and so on. And uh, that makes my job an awful lot easier because they're actually all pushing for it. They're all, uh, you know, I want the BBA to play a a leadership role, as it were, trying to um, uh, play a constructive part in restoring confidence in the industry. But it's, uh, my members are really, really pushing for it. And you see a lot of different initiatives that announce the whole time. I'm just one example you talked about uh, mis-selling in various forms earlier. Uh, a lot of the banks have uh, got rid of, if not most of them, have got rid of uh, sales bonuses in their retail arms. So no longer are they actually paying people to, uh, to sell, to sell products to, to, to customers because they thought it, uh, uh, there was a lot of evidence, it encouraged mis-selling. And in their determination to uh, stop mis-selling, they're changing their whole pay structures. And that's, uh, that's, a, you know, that's a very welcome development. And it's a uh, because of this determination, as a result of the libel scandal and the shock and reaction to it, uh, I do think the industry will be in a lot better place. In, in uh, you know, in, in it will take years, but it will, you know, it will get to a lot better place, and hopefully, we'll have an end of uh, end to all these scandals. I certainly hope you're right. I'd like my kids to be. I able hope to, right. <laughs> to walk into a bank and not have to worry. David, I, I, I do have one additional point on, on money laundering. You know, I, I, I think. Banks involved in money laundering, there's a need to unpick you know, w- what is involved here. Deliberate, fully aware people knowing that money, drugs money is being laundered should go to jail and for a very long time, and laws exist to make that happen. An awful lot of the time here, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, and what happened last year, we're, we're, we're talking about how much should a bank spend, how much focus should you have on getting the absolute best systems you possibly can 
you can never eliminate money laundering. You know, you, you, airlines can't stop people flying on planes. You know, they, they all, people will all, these are very rich, very clever people who are trying very, very hard to launder money. Banks even, you know, if the Archbishop, brilliant though he is and with the intent that he has, was running a bank, I, you couldn't guarantee that you would stop money laundering unless you stopped all trading with Latin America, Central America, Middle East, and even then you'd find it difficult. So you know, there's, what is the right culture? The right culture is that you spend the right amount on preventing money laundering. And, you know, and I say the right amount, it's hard to get to. My, my daughter's a surgeon in the NHS, and you know, she's very articulate. Uh, that the entirety of all our income should be spent on the NHS because it's really important to save lives, and it absolutely is. But we do make choices to spend money on some other things. And you know, the, 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 the thing with culture, it gets very simplistic. You know, you, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd hate to be a non-executive director of a bank because I wouldn't know how much you should spend to do the right thing on preventing money laundering, and I really wouldn't. And it's not unethical to say that. I just don't know the answer. I, will, I agree with you on that, but 70% of Mexico's drug money was running through HSBC. I, 70%. I, 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 yes. I, I, That's I, a different... I, no, yeah. no, believe me, I'm not, you know, I wasn't defending individual banks, banks, and I'm, I'm really not. No, it is, no, I, I, you're right. Money laundering no. happens, but you don't have 70% no. of the drug money running through what? your Miami branch. Um, anyway, that's me taking advantage of being the chair. But now it's your guys' turn. Um, we'd like to open up the floor for questions. Um, could you please try to limit your question to like a question and not too big a statement? Uh, because we're here to hear the panel. Um, way back by the camera went up first. My name is Sikrum David's daughter. I'm a journalist. Um, I come from a small island uh, which tried to be a financial, uh, international financial center for a while. I'm not from Cyprus, I'm from Iceland. Um, one of the things uh, I wanted to pick up on was what uh, Lord Griffiths was talking about, uh, about proportions. Um, if I were a, a shareholder in a bank uh, and I had also bought a car, my car got stolen and the police wouldn't do anything about it, um, I would be pretty upset. I'm waiting for shareholders to be very, very upset about banks getting away with paying only fines. Uh, we do see these numbers, very high numbers, record numbers, but they are never put in proportion with uh, the profit of the bank, um, the profit stemming from this allegedly criminal activity. So my question is really, um, why don't we see more criminal prosecutions when it comes to banking? Oh, there's Microphone. Microphone. Okay, and also let's let's wait. Hang on. To be fair to the shareholders, a lot of if you if you bought late, yes, you got a bad. Bank shares ran up like you would not believe in 2000. Shareholders played along with this game. They were very excited by how fast Barclays was growing and how big the dividends were. It is true that now they're worth less, but depending when you bought, you may actually probably got more than you deserved. And the taxpayers actually are the ones who are really. Anyway, um, on criminal prosecution. 
Does, okay. In your view, um, does anybody want to weigh in on criminal prosecutions? Um. I want to make two points. I mean, one where, where as I said uh, in my speech at the beginning, where there has been uh, criminal activity, clearly the people ought to be prosecuted. Do try and listen to, you know, if you ask questions, try and listen to the answers. Uh, if there has been criminal activity, then clearly it should be prosecuted, and the uh, prosecution authorities, whether it's the serious fraud office or uh, the police, uh, you know, should be resource sufficiently to actually do those proper uh, investigations. And there are, as it happens in the wake of the libel scandal, there are the serious fraud office is now investigating uh, various people uh, we read. So there might be end up being some criminal prosecutions there. Uh, the, however, having said that. Um, there, and in a lot of discussions, there's just a sense, well, a bank failed, therefore uh, somebody should go to jail. And it's, I, that I would really completely disagree with, because banks make business decisions, and uh, sometimes those business decisions go wrong. Banks had business models that were over-leveraged. The, uh, you know, they, had, <clears throat> they ended up, with the benefit of hindsight, having sort of very risky uh, models, and several of them imploded. But that doesn't mean, having a failed business doesn't mean you're a criminal, and people should be allowed to take some sort of risks without actually going to jail. I mean, they, they, lots of bit successful business, and I said this in, to my, uh, when I gave evidence to the Parliamentary Commission, uh, have made big mistakes. I mean, you look at Nokia, they miss smartphones, and their, their share price went down 90%. Do you think the head of Nokia should go to jail? It's a, it's a you, know, you people, businesses need, need to be able to make decisions without, uh, ordinary business decisions without the risk of going to jail. And actually, on the subject of the, the first questioner, where you're asking about when do you tie it to how much money they made, the FCA, the new regulator that takes over in April, is using a new penalty policy that does, in fact, explicitly tie the size of fines to the amount of money that got made. Whether it will work, who knows, but they at least, they at least are trying. And, and, and UBS, which has won some prizes for being the most fined bank around, is one of the few banks that has not had a profit in a year. I mean, because every time you turn around, they get fined for something else. And it is coming off their bottom line. I mean, I feel bad for the UBS shareholders because they clearly didn't sign up. And that, that, that really is the point. That there is a difficulty. When a bank does something wrong, who do you find appropriately? You, 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 you're arguing for shareholders, and I absolutely understand <coughs> that. When people talk about shareholders, they think about the sort of people who are earning banking bonuses. It isn't. Everybody in this room will have held shares in banks through their pension fund, etc. So when we say, let's find the banks, who pays? Well, the only people who can pay are the employees, and you know, employees are individually fined if, if they, uh, and in some cases, very large amounts. There was one uh, relatively, uh, well, a director of Northern Rock, I think, was fined £300,000 personally, which for a building society is quite a lot of money. But you find the shareholders, is that fair? Your shareholders, you had nothing to do with it. Do you find the customers, you know, because they've got to find the money from customers, or do you find the individuals? You can't take the big fines from individuals. So do you accept a very heavy penalty for the, personal, uh, the person who not made a mistake, but made a, uh, uh, did, did, did something criminal? And, and, and I think, actually, a lot of the big headline-grabbing fines have just been fines on p people who had nothing to do with it, shareholders, uh, pe pe people who uh, rely on banks for their pensions. So I'll just follow up on one quick point. It's, it's quite a quick one. It's a point of principle, just picking up on uh, the points here, about whether you punish institutions or punish individuals. And the trouble with a lot of the, the big fines is you are basically punishing institutions, and that means uh, <clears throat> largely that often the shareholders end up uh, paying. 
Um, but that won't necessarily change the behavior of individuals because everything that happens is done by an individual. And uh, there, there's certainly an argument to be had that actually more emphasis should be put on making sure that you punish uh, individuals who clear, not just to make mistakes, etc., which everyone does, but actually where there is clear wrongdoing. Uh, and so when you have these massive fines, whether it's for money laundering or you know, attempted manipulation of libel or whatever else, that actually individuals themselves who are doing it do get punished. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of problems here. I mean, I don't think that we have been in this country good enough uh, with the serious fraud office and, and tracking down crime. I don't think the FSA has been good enough. Um, when it comes to, on, as against the fraud side, onto things like sort of market abuse rules, they haven't been constructed uh, wide enough to capture things like indices and other things, which, I mean, sometimes, and, and, and I, I notice this at the European end of things, the, the UK loves to define things in terribly precise ways that quite often turn out to be totally useless when somebody's a little bit enterprising. Uh, and, and being a patent attorney, I'm used to drafting something that'll stand the test of time for 20 years and will capture things that haven't been thought of yet, and, and I think we need a little bit more of that in our, in our thinking about how we define things, this, this notion that you've got to know, uh, you know exactly what's black and what's white, and so you'll never be caught. And, but you've got to have the situation that the directors do take responsibility. I'm not saying necessarily that they, they get thrown in jail when somebody else commits a fraud. But one of the problems of size and complexity of, of, of organisations is that they don't know what's going on at the board level. It's absolutely impossible. Uh, and then, uh, and of course, then sometimes they use that as a, as a, as a way to hide. Um, take J.P. Morgan and the London Whale and Jamie Dimon, and we're discovering he did know things that he said he didn't know. Um, so... so but, but at the top, you've got to be able to take responsibility and, and there needs to be much more accountability at that level. Um, and anyway, you're getting it because guess what? That's in CRD4 as well. Um, <laughs> we've had a good old go over on the corporate governance aspects of that. But, but, but I, I mean, you know, big is not good. Uh, the trouble is we're stuck with it and we've got to find a way to deal with it. Just listening to this uh, discussion uh, sort of mystifies me, really. Uh, it's that complicated for people within the industry to talk to each other about what might or might not need doing. Um, and, uh, well, they've got to go on having that discussion to find a way to solve it. I mean, one of the most graphic days of my life recently was um, just rushing off to support someone who was uh, in court um, because uh, a bank employee, um, just uh, behind a counter, really, um, he had... Uh, um, inappropriately used his uh, business card to help him uh, to run his personal finances through a cash flow moment. Um, he had plenty of um, uh, money vested in his property that the bank could have got if they'd wanted to, but the minute he did that, he was noticed and sacked and indeed imprisoned for eight months. First offence, and we're talking about £10,000, um, and the money was there for the bank to take back any time. Now, I'm not saying he shouldn't have been sacked, but I am saying that, um, that, uh, that, uh, that to be treated in that peremptory manner and sent to prison uh, was an extraordinary thing on the same day that the head of his bank, who after a year of not doing as well as it should have done, uh, was given a, a large amount of money um, to be got rid of. 
Um, what do they call it? A leaden handshake or something like that, one of those things. Um, but, I mean, it just, it just mystifies ordinary people to hear um, this kind of a conversation. There is a big public relations exercise that needs to happen between the banking industry and the ordinary public. Don't leave it to the Daily Mail to make up the stories. Have a PR department that sit, I mean, in Parliament, because we're pretty complicated, we go out to schools and all kinds of places to try to help them to understand how government works. We have a whole army of volunteers who do it pro bono. The banking industry, it seems to me, had better do a bit of that. Um, and it might help them in explaining their activities to non-specialists to understand what they as specialists need to fix on. It might be a, a good therapy, indeed. Should we try somebody up near the front? How about the gentleman um, by the white post? Uh, yes, you. Wait, wait, for the, wait for the microphone. It's much easier. One of the things that puzzles me, really, is um, why the banks seem to have so much money to distribute to employees compared with other um, fairly useful industries. Um, and I, I wonder if the panel think that uh, one reason might be what Andrew Haldane, the Bank of England, thinks, is that um, they don't actually pay enough for the insurance they get from the state. Which, um, and profits have gone up an awful lot in my lifetime. You know, when I was young, bankers weren't paid so excessively and they didn't take such big risks. So, you know, is, is the fact they're not really paying the proper rate of their insurance the answer? Because they're not probably eligible for a no-claims discount at the moment. And why don't we take a second question as well right here and we'll... Wait, wait, wait for the microphone. Yes, sir. Uh, what I believe we need is not... Um, telephone book fools of regulations, but we need informed and assertive shareholders who hold their, their directors and their boards fully to account, and also informed and assertive consumers who, who take an interest in what they're buying, have an interest in what they're purchasing, and make a probing and informed decision as to where they put their money. Um, somebody want to talk about the first point? Should I touch on them? Oh, that's okay, that's um, just, the, uh, just the last point. Uh, sure, I, I, mean, I, I agree with you totally. I think the shareholders uh, should be as informed as possible and have powers to just make major decisions about the companies that they own. And in fact, that's one of the disagreements I have with about the bonus cap there, that actually ultimately it should be up to the, uh, the shareholders to decide uh, you know what the remuneration policy is within within their banks. I mean, having said that, though, shareholders have been have not had the, have not exercised that power or had the power to do it, and uh, that is a problem that, that does need addressing. And that's a whole uh, separate debate. On the consumer side, I completely uh, uh, agree with you. We're big supporters of financial education. Uh, indeed, we called for it to be introduced in the uh, national curriculum, which the government have now are now consulting on. Uh, we think it's very important that people are as informed as possible about uh, their financial affairs, so they can manage them, and also so they're empowered to uh, be able to make sure they get a, a good deal. And in fact, there is a, the banks do do a lot of outreach. Indeed, they, they all have big programs with schools and so on and so forth. Uh, you may not have uh, noticed it, but it's, uh, but they do they do do an, they do do an awful lot of that. Um, in terms of uh, the, the point about pay and insurance, um, the uh, we are I mean, the banking sector and the BBA are fully committed to 
ending too big to fail and all the reforms that, that, that are necessary for that, some of which I touched on uh, in my speech, to make sure there isn't that implicit subsidy that the banks will get sort of bailed out if they uh, collapse, which uh, Mark Carney called, uh, the incoming governor of the Bank of England, uh, called sort of head, heads, you, heads I win, tails you lose capitalism, which isn't capitalism at all. No, bank, banks shouldn't be. Un, uh, under, fundamentally, we've got to end the system whereby banks are, uh, uh, if they fail, they get bailed out by the state. They shouldn't. They should be allowed to die, basically. On that insurance question, that's part of what the leverage ratio that Davis was talking about earlier, um, and also the, this idea of increased capital requirements that Sharon's been working so hard on on CRD4. The, the reason banks can make so much money with relatively little money is that they are undercapitalized, so that when things go wrong, they have to get the state to help them. If they had more capital, as we hopefully are heading that way, then when they go bust, it will be the shareholders who pay, but at least it won't be the, t- the taxpayers. It might be all kinds of people. Um, uh, bondholders, maybe. Because, because it will be the bondholders, and the bondholders might well be your pension fund. So um, I think if you actually analyse who pays in the end when these things go bust, it's the man in the street one way or another, unfortunately, and, and you actually can't get away from that. Um, but why do banks have so much money to distribute? Well, I think actually credit and everything has been too cheap. Um, but, but, I mean, I think that they're still running on the old principle when it was actually <coughs> maybe the owner's own capital and you earned money and it was sort of one, one for the firm and, and, and one for you. Uh, and that continues uh, to be the case for, for many traders, um, but it's not their money that they're playing with. So the whole basis of it is, is just an assumption that, that doesn't exist. You shouldn't get paid a lot of money for taking risk with somebody else's money. If, it, if it's your own, then, then that's fair game. And that's why if you perhaps go over into some of the investment firms where it is your own money, it, 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 it's different. Uh, I'm having an argument with my colleagues about this in the, in the Parliament at the moment. Um, but but uh, there will always be a subsidy to banks, no matter what you do, because they have um, a monopoly on liquidity and intermediation and the creation of money and you cannot take that monopoly away and so you're stuck with it um the, the shareholders is also an interesting point because many of the shareholders uh, don't vote um we've had a big fight now about what should the quorum be for the shareholders that vote that can put the one-to-one bonus up to one to two and uh, there's a lot of, well, we actually can't get more than 50% of the shareholders to vote. Why not? Because the shares may well be in funds or indices and things. Who, who votes them then? I mean, what are the instructions? It doesn't work out. And then others are, are large um, financial institutions um, that, that tend to have the same mindset as the, as, as the, as the banks themselves. And, and so it's going to take a long time, I think, to turn that culture around until the shareholders um, really, really get a grip on it. But, I mean, it's much more in the face for the shareholders if they see the salary bill. Because bonuses are always paid when, at the same time you know, when the money is made, and so they feel okay. But if you want to look at the overheads overall, you, you need to look at them up front. Uh, and, and the other thing about why so much of it is paid in bonuses, because that's the way of, of, of 
providing some management. Um, this has been one of the arguments against capping bonuses, that, that uh, when times get hard, well, they, they, they cut the bonus. But again, if you're managing your company, that you really can't work out what your overheads are going to be on a more stable basis, I think, again, that is quite a worry. You're, you're doing things in, in rather an unstable way, and I'd rather our banks were more stable. David? I, I think a lot of this goes back to financial education, and that might, might sound simplistic, but I, I really believe we are the shareholders. Sharon's absolutely right. Most of the time, it's the man in the street who really owns the shares. And I think you know, the fund management companies have a role, but I think we have a role. We have a, you know, some of us buy you know, ethical investments because we, we believe in them. I think if we all started really looking at fund managers in terms of how you know, what are they saying about how they challenge banks? They talk all the time about how they, you know, this is their trading performance. You know, if we bought fund managers who said they were going to hold the shares for 25 years and they were going to hold management accountable and they were going to cl be close to the management, you know, and we bought those funds, then actually we'd be changing the behaviour. As it is, we buy funds on, 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 on trackers and there's no connection with the company. And while we do that, we're not exercising any rights. And, and one of the key questions, I think, is, you know, what, what is the role? How do we get good customers going forward who really understand enough about, you know, what an interest-only mortgage is? I mean, I think everybody in this room would know what an interest-only mortgage is. But in fairness, there are a lot of people who really don't understand that if they've had an interest-only mortgage for 10 years, they still own as much as they started. And you know, that's where we are. Now, part of that's the bank's fault, part of that's financial education, but I think between us, it'd be a good idea if we fixed it. Should take another question? How about the brown sweater on the end? And then also, why don't we take this gentleman as well, so we do two at a time. Um, I am a PhD candidate at University of Warwick, and I'm writing on EU anti-corruption policies, standard and regulation. I have a question specific for the MEP about the new EU anti-corruption report, which will come up this year, and uh, what it will entail <coughs> and will it foster any good regulation and good government practice, or will it just be another report and recommendation? Thank you. Why don't we also do this one? Hi, uh, I'm a regulatory lawyer, so by the sounds of it, I'm going to be quite busy for the next few years, and my job is quite safe. Um, I, I just wanted to ask a question about the uh, bonus cap. I think Sharon um, alluded to the fact that it was part, partly a political response um, responding to general feeling that bankers are paid too much. I, I, I would think, I would agree with that very much, and I would um, echo much of the criticism that has been made against the bonus tax, which I think will lead to a less flexible financial system, will have bad prudential effects on the firms involved, and importantly, isn't going to affect how much people are paid because the top people are always going to be well rewarded and their salaries will just be increased as a result. And significantly, there is no opportunity to claw back salary. So I think actually the proposals are, are quite misconceived. 
Sharon, do you want to yeah, yeah, get those I'll do two? that. Well, EU anti-corruption law, not mine. Um, so I think that's probably the Libe committee. Um, um, but uh, I, it's not in front of me at this moment, so I can't help you on that. Um, we, we are doing various things on, on market abuse and so forth that are, that are current in the committee. Uh, I've, I've got enough with the 50 work streams that are on my plate at the moment without looking at ones that haven't hit me yet. So I'm, I'm sorry for that. Um, so I can't help you there. Um, I expect that, that there will be um, a big appetite to tighten up in these areas because when we're looking at things, whether it be the savings tax directive or other things, in times of austerity, you want to make sure that, that, that you know, taxes are paid, uh, that, that money is properly correct, collected, and, and so that the Parliament is usually very determined on those kinds of things. We do get a, a lot of pushback from member states and for some member states that won't be transparent uh, that, that, I mean, we can't even get the savings tax directive through in, in, in getting proper exchange of information uh, because of countries holding, holding out on that. So you can't find where the wealth has been, has been hidden. So, um, but I think small steps are, are progressively taken, and I think that they will, they will accelerate and merely because of the economic times. If you go to the bonus cap, we've been through all of the arguments. Uh, I mean, I think there is a range of people. There are people who, yes, just think that the pay is too big. You know, let's do something. Uh, I don't buy this less flexible argument. You know, you can still pay what will actually be about, you know, two and a half times salary in bonus. So, frankly, if you can't manage your, your, your uh, cash flow to within, you know, one to three, then you've no business running our banks as far as I'm concerned. So, crap, the less flexible. Um, as far as the bad prudential, well, you know, that's the same argument. You're just saying, well, you know, we don't know what our money's going to be and we're not going to plan it and we're going to, you know, give as much away in bonus as we can uh, whenever we can, and, but sometimes we'll save it when we think we need it. I mean, it just doesn't stack up when you look at the argument. Why do you have to give people three or more than three times what they earn for doing their job in order to manage the cash flow of your business? I don't know any other business that runs that way. And these are the people who are supposed to be good at it, you know, and in charge of our money. And no, we don't buy it. Um, yes, it will be that the top people, salaries will go up as, as, as part of the way to get around this so that they have comparable packages overall. But I don't, they're not going to go around, you know, wondering all the time um, about what their bonus is, it's not going to maybe make them be so greedy and introduce bad behaviour. And anyway, the two times can still be clawed back along with their pension pots and various other things. So there's, there's plenty of clawback there. If they want to get more, it's going to be paid in long-term instruments. There's already rules about that. So, you know, I, I think that um, we have to wait and see. But we asked for moderation we got none. Somebody somewhere had to make a stand. You couldn't have done it as the UK on its own. The EU is big. You cannot have the biggest single market in the world without banks. 
And so we're always going to have banks, we're always going to have bankers, and they're going to be paid according to our rules. And if they're employed overseas by our banks, it applies to them as well. Let's see what happens in a few <coughs> years. Um, but frankly, the majority have just said we've had enough. Uh, we've heard all these arguments. We've got counter-arguments. It's not going to change now. It's done. Forget it. It's done. Oh, that's very good. I like that. Um, um, but, of course, I'd like to go a bit further. I don't understand bonuses at all, um, to be quite honest. Uh, I mean, I've, I mentioned the poor earlier, and uh, they haven't got back into the conversation since. Um, and, um, of course, um, I could uh, uh, make some contrasts between this rich country we live in and the poor where I've lived for a significant part of my life. But I don't do that. The, the kind of discussion we're having and the issues that we're talking about are just totally incomprehensible to most of Great Britain, actually. It's such a kind of tiny part of um, the national life that we are talking about. And, and these are, are quite artificial constructs within um, that sector of our national life. Um, I mean, I don't know anybody... Um, well, John Lewis, of course, do it differently. They, they, they share the goodies out amongst everybody. And pro rata, too. Let, let that happen. Um, but this argument about, well, if you have these bonuses, if you take them away, if you take all these privileges away, then people will go elsewhere. And I say, you know, I'd buy them their fare. It'll be economy. Uh, they, I wouldn't give them first class to get out of the country, but let them go. I bet there's a whole tranche of wonderful management that can't get to the top because these wretched people paid as much as they are are there already. I mean, I really think shake it up a bit and let's see what happens. Quality will rise. But um, if our standing in the world depends upon us creating this shaky edifice, um, then um, I, I think that I'd rather test that hypothesis rather than go on subscribing to it. I would agree that bonuses are clearly out of the realm of most people's lives. But in fact, when things go wrong at the banks, it's all of us, and it's all of Great Britain that does pay. Not only do we buy RBS and Lloyds, but frankly, PPI which, you know, and packaged accounts that sell you things you don't want that you can't use, it's, it's actually those, that sort of stuff that's really undermining people's sense of, of self and, their, frankly, their ability to save for their pensions. And so I think... This isn't just an esoteric debate. Maybe a bonus cap would help, maybe it won't, but it's, it's, not a, it's not some out there European Brussels thing that you can ignore. This is about whether our society is going to function properly in the future. Well, you, you, you won't be surprised to hear that I disagree with that. Yeah. <laughs> About the bonus cap, I, mean, I agree with the, uh, the, the, the questioner. I mean, the, the, as I said earlier, I think fundamentally remuneration policy should be decided by the people who own the, own the banks and own companies. And they need, if they haven't got the powers or aren't exercising the powers, they should be given them and you need to make changes to make sure they do exercise them, which is what the John Kay review is doing for the government. The, um, I mean, banks are uh, very cyclical, more than other businesses in terms of their income. It uh, goes up and down. It clearly... Uh, has a makes it more stable for the banks if they can, in down years, reduce the pay by cutting bonuses rather than sacking staff. Uh, if they sack staff, they're not there to uh, do business when it, when it uh, comes back up. You don't have bonuses for everyone in the, in the entire bank, so it's not a question of the whole wage bill going from one to three, because most people don't get bonuses that big. It's only people in certain set parts of the bank.
bank, and it's the people largely uh, who are doing sales. And in fact, bonuses, having the, the business model of a low base pay and, and then most of the pay being on commission on sales is a completely standard uh, uh, model in lots of other areas. I agree these aren't particularly good comparisons, but estate agents and car salesmen, that is another, another model. You might want to uh, cap bonuses on estate agents as well. But uh, what really matters on bonuses is, um, is making sure that people aren't rewarded on getting bonuses for behaviour uh, that you want to discourage, for taking excessive short-term risks for, uh, with other people's money, as was mentioned earlier. You've got to make sure that the, uh, the bonuses are used to encourage the sort of behavior that aligns the long-term interest of the individual with the company. And in fact, most of that is, is already in place, and largely through EU legislation, as Sharon mentioned earlier, that actually most bonuses, the vast majority are paid in, in uh, are deferred over three or five years to make sure the long-term incentive is there. And most of them, sometimes individual companies go far further than that and uh, postpone it until uh, people actually retire. Then there's, most of the bonuses have to be paid in, uh, in shares or equities or other uh, long, longer-term instruments. And for the higher pay, the actual instant cash bonus is, by law, a maximum of 20%. And for those of you, uh, you know, concerned about the level of bonuses, the actual total cash bonus has dropped 77% since uh, 2007, uh, which is an enormous drop by, uh, by anyone's standards. Um, and just one bit of uh, consolation for those of, uh, um, or rather to uh, sort of point of fact, for those of... Uh, uh, who want less bonuses. I say this having worked at Morgan Stanley um, for a short time, that actually an awful lot of staff who get bonuses would much prefer be paid in salary because actually you can you get it every month, you can uh, get a mortgage on it, you know that it's coming in, and actually being paid in shares in five years' time is a real, is a real pain in the neck for most employees. So actually the people, many of the people who are going to be happiest from this are actually the bankers. I think we've got time for maybe one more question. I think who's been... This gentleman here, I think, has been waiting. Yeah. Thanks very much. I'm Peter Lay from the British Council. Um, I'm head of Treasury and Banking at the British Council, which is an unusual job to have because you think it's a charity and we're global and we're highly dependent on our banks. Just being responsive to development agents, you know, the development organizations around the world and what we're trying to do. Um, I was recently in the, in the United States and I had the pleasure of uh, talking to the Federal Reserve and talking to Janet Yellen. Um, and one of the things that I, I felt about regulation, which seems to occur to lots of corporates trying to operate and trying to kickstart our own economies and development organizations, is the regulation is costing. It's costing the banks. There's a lot of isolated or insular thinking going on. So there isn't the focus and the investment being placed on the emerging markets. So for charities, development organizations, we're seeing some of the international banks pull away from engagement with us. And that's costing, that's costing the US, that's costing the UK, it's costing Europe in terms of development and engagement. And while we're focusing on trying to fix what, what we think might happen in the future, we don't seem to be making the opportunities for growth and engagement in the developing world. And um, I'm, I'm just interested to hear, we, we're talking at a very high level about bonuses and everything else, but we're not talking about bonuses for wise members of staff in the bank. We're not talking about the effect of people out there, the consumers. What's going to happen to consumers in Cyprus with the banking? What is the European Parliament? What's its view with regard to the, the Cyprus crisis? and bailing out those banks. Those are the issues that are really affecting people and worrying us in terms of trust and confidence in the banks. 
to say something, Sharon? Yeah. Um, well, I can give you... <coughs> well, I, I mean, part of my answer to you, it goes back to where I started on simplicity, that I think regulations should be more simple, more transparent, and then we would be spending less time and, we, and, and banks could get on with the proper business of supporting the real economy. And if you go to my website, you'll find quite a lot of speeches on that. And, and actually, we're already in our next crisis. It's a regulatory crisis. And I'm, I'm serious about that at a time when we're in the search for growth. Um, and, and I mean, the UK, of course, has been at the front of if it's moves, slap capital on it, find another way. The, the, I mean, I have done quite a lot of, of fighting uh, against, if you like, the excesses of the Treasury and the FSA in Europe. You, the banks have got a much better deal because this legislation has come from Europe than if it had been done solely in the UK. And I can give you a great long string of examples uh, all the way through from, from EMEA and CRD. It doesn't mean to say what I've done. I mean, I don't go to, to the extremes that some would like, but I mean, we, we've, we've made trade finance cheaper because there was no reason to up the capital on trade finance at a time when we want to stimulate growth. There was not enough proof uh, that trade finance was safe because there weren't enough defaults that had been collected as evidence because there weren't it, there weren't enough. And, and so, but, but in their enthusiasm for, well, we don't know, so let's put capital up. So we've, we've taken that off. We've done similar things for, for SMEs, um, which eventually the, the UK Treasury has uh, decided that they're, they're happy with. The uh, FSA was still a bit less than happy. Uh, turning to Cyprus, um, I mean, I, I was probably the lone voice from the European Parliament on that the last weekend, but go and look at my Twitter stream. Um, you'll, you'll see quite a lot there. But uh, over this week, it's become quite clear that the overwhelming view in the Parliament is whilst we accept the, you know, why the, if you like, the envelope of this was structured so that 10 billion was affordable for Cyprus to pay back. You had to go looking for some other money somewhere else. Uh, that it was unfair in the way that it hit smaller savers. It was really bad in the way that it has destroyed the trust in the deposit guarantee scheme by, by sort of wangling around it on this notion, well, it's a levy and a tax, and it's not that. Um, and so there is a lot of sympathy. Myself, I really think that the ECB is becoming just a little bit too political uh, in the way that it threatens to withdraw liquidity. I, I know central banks have to be tough at times, but I think that knowing some of the personalities involved in this, I can just imagine that, that they were overly political in the way that was applied, and it seems so since. Um, right as we speak, there might be all kinds of interesting things going on, but there, there, I think there could have been other options and ways to raise that 5.8 billion. Yes, go for the big accounts that are un, uninsured. That's, that's fair game. Wipe out the bondholders, but the junior bondholders, I think, were hit, and there weren't that many senior for it to make any difference, but they should have been wiped out if you're going to wipe out depositors because they rank pari passu with that, so you can't have different rules for things that are meant to be ranked the same. I think if you tried to link the amount you were taking from depositors to the interest that they had received, it would have been fairer, um, because they've been receiving higher interest in a 
dodgy banking system in Cyprus, um, much more than if they'd had it, say, invested in a bank in, in another country. So if you'd said, right, well, you're, you know, you're 3% up, we're going to come in and the amount you pay uh, relates to that, that would have had an element of fairness in it. They could have been looking at some kind of structure that you know, maybe in a goodwill gesture did something with the gas revenues, even though they're both politically and technically difficult to get at. But you know, we're a uni European Union. You, know, you, you, know, you could have done a, a, a bigger package. But the fact of the matter is they got the data on the bank accounts on Friday. They went into a meeting and they, they sat around with a bunch of ministers and whoever else is there and, 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 and tried to come out in 10 hours with a plan that if you went to an investment bank or anybody else to try and sort out, would have taken a little bit more thought than that. So, it, it, you know, it's not, it was a bad plan. I just fear that it might have backfired very badly now, uh, dependent upon uh, how they're going to deal with the banks and, and this investment fund and, and whatever is going on. Do you want to talk about the impact on the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I fundamentally agree with the, with the questioner that uh, ultimately what this whole thing about, is about is uh, it's about the real economy, it's about real people, it's about the poor people you mentioned, it's about the, uh, the, uh, the developing world, about uh, uh, global businesses, local businesses being able to get access to finance, it's about people having trust in their banks and the products they can get in the banks. It's all real world stuff and the banks are absolutely there to serve uh, the rest of the economy and the rest of the our society rather, rather than the other way around. I mean, you know, there have been major failures which meant it has been the other way around sometimes, and that's why we need to uh, reform the system. Uh, sometimes people ask me why I took this job on representing the banks, and it's actually because uh, we need a banking system, we need a healthy banking system, we need to restore trust and confidence in the banking system. The banks are uh, determined to do what it means to get there, even though there might be disagreements on particular things like, uh, like bonuses. And I have to say that on, on uh, bonuses, really sort of agreeing with the questioner, that actually it's something that politicians obsess about a lot and the, and the media gets a bit uh, upset about. So if you look at the opinion polls, what, what, what do people actually care about? They, the, most of the public don't really care about bonuses that much. They do care about mis-selling. Uh, and they do care about uh, having bailed out the banks and uh, with, uh, with taxpayers' money. They get very upset about that. And the, the, the whole point about the, the Cyprus thing is shows uh, the importance of getting this right. Because without uh, having... Uh, if you don't get it right, then you have those sort of financial crises that cause major panics, that cause huge drains on taxpayers. We've got to get it right. Just uh, my last, yeah. la last word. Um, a slightly different example, <coughs> but, um, uh, but uh, still with the poor in mind. Uh, when the um, International Monetary Fund moved into Haiti to, uh, at a time when, at last, after many years of dictatorship, there was um, democracy um, about to burgeon, um, it came in uh, supposedly to help uh, to establish and to underpin the democracy by helping it with its, uh, its development programs. And it required through these wretched um, structural adjustment programs that they tended to impose on, on countries in the developing world, it required the country um, to sell its um, nationally owned assets as a part of the deal. And um, that immediately uh, threatened the very democracy <laughs> that uh, led to the initiative to bring them in in the first place um, happened because once the country sold off its flour factory and its cement factory and so on, which were just about the only national owned, they were bought by people within the, finan the, the financially well-off part 
of the country. In other words, the great divergence between what is commonly called in Haiti the morally repugnant elite um, and, and the peasantry who have nothing um, was just uh, reinforced because it was that very elite that bought the assets, took them into the private sector, and created the problem that we're still trying to face in Haiti to this day. So um, it, it's just that I, I do see a role for the banking industry, whether in the IMF or in any other way, in serving the needs of any society. And um, any conversation like this that we have, which raises criticisms of, of the industry, must have as its ultimate goal um, taking the conversation beyond this point um, to asking the question again and again, how can we get our banks to serve the best interests of the country, and that raises ethical questions necessarily. Last word, David, and then Sharon. Oh, that's exceptionally kind. In terms of the developing world, I think banks have become more cautious, and so they should. After 2008, they've become more cautious. Capital's become tighter. But I do see some really fantastic things. I've been in Africa and a number of countries in Latin America in the last year, and I really see in Africa using mobile telephony, South African banks, Barclays, other banks, providing services to people who never had banking before. There's a lot wrong with banking, but when you see what it can do to a society that hasn't had it in, in terms of safety and security and not having to ca carry cash about, encouraging trade, and, you know, we're really talking about the poor, and you know, microfinance, all these things depend on banking. <coughs> and using that technology to do that, I think, is fantastic. I've seen Santander and BBVA getting their entire growth story, really, around uh, the Hispanic United States, many developing countries. And you know, I look at countries like Mexico. Look, we've talked about the problems with drug laundering. You know, Audi opening a plant in Mexico to supply the United States you know, needs effective trade finance, which comes back to what banks really do. And it, you know, one of the most remarkable statistics, I think, is that over half the trade finance between India and Africa is managed through London. And I think that, you know, we talk about socially useful banking. I think that's socially useful banking for poor people. And, you know, it works in a capitalist society too. Let's not pretend it doesn't. In terms of crisis, I've agreed with everything Sharon has said throughout the long weekend about the 100,000. I agree with that absolutely. But, and, you know, I think this applied to Icelandic banks too. I think when banks are paying double the average rate... You know, there should be some reflection of that when a bank goes down. You know, the, the, the depositors who were in the banks that were paying lower rates shouldn't cross-subsidise the ones that are in the higher rate banks. That, that drives out good money and sensible consumer decisions. But I think if the EU says there's a guarantee of €100,000, there should be €100,000. And I think you know, your, your point about making a mistake in 10 hours, the, the real tragedy is that all this time since 2008 with a problem that everybody's seen coming for a very long time, it had to be sided in 10 hours. And I kind of understand why, because people would have taken the money out if they'd known there was a three-week meeting going on determining how, how the losses were going to be apportioned. You'd have to close the banks down for three weeks. But, you know, all this time on from 2008, we should have a better way of resolving banks than that. Sharon, would you like a last... Well, I, I, I had quite a long go there. I, um, I mean, they're going to have been closed for a week by the time they sort out in Cyprus. But uh, uh, as an interesting byproduct of that, people have from time to time uh, speculated how a country may or may not be able to leave the euro 
and have thought that that was something that they could do quickly over one weekend, I think that the fact that you couldn't even sort little cypress out with this kind of thing uh, over a weekend just, just nails once and for all that uh, we would be in for some really mega major disruption if anything like that were, were ever to happen. Um, but, but apart from that, I, I think I've had a fair crack at most of the things. That's good. Well, it, it's been a fascinating evening, I think, and with really good range of opinions, Which, because I sit on too many panels where everybody agrees with each other, and it's really boring. Um, this, this is fantastic. Um, I think, you know, the, I guess speaking here, you want to sort of think about one's moral duty and all that. This shouldn't just be everybody sitting and listening to a bunch of people debating about bonuses. This should, should be about everyone going home and thinking about how can I personally help make the banking system better either through my consumer decisions, go give your money to the bank that's doing good things. Take your money out of the bank that is risky and you know, brings out its crazy bonus schedule on budget day, um, where I have to confess I have money and I've been thinking about. You know, go do something. You know, lobby your MP. Get, if you really care enough to come listen to this stuff, do something. And I guess on that note, thank you all for coming. <laughs>